They said it couldn't be done, but we are back for a second instalment of A Link to the Cast. It is your weekly hour of power, too sweet to be sour. I am Mark Robinson, and with me from across the pond is Dave Ryan. Dave Ryan, how are you? I'm pretty good. Tentatively approaching the difficult second episode. Much like the second album of a band, can we live up to the very low expectations we've set ourselves? I think we're going to do better than the Kooks. That's all I'm going to say. (laughs) Wow, the mother of all low bars. Yeah, well, I mean, to be fair, it's not like I've... No, because the first album was terrible. Anyway, this is not a music podcast. This is a video games podcast <laughs> where we talk about games and we don't bitch about the kooks right now, which I could easily do, but we'll save that for another time. Um, yeah, how's your week been, Dave? Mixed, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I have I have a tale from my week, tale of woe. I've, uh, As my grandmother would say, I've been in the wars kind of going about my week i had some final stuff wrapping up from college and i um on one of the very rare nice days we get in ireland i decide you know what wear a pair of shorts i'll go outside i'll go outside into the back garden lie down relax for a while got eaten alive by bugs which was fantastic all the bug bites started to go away except for one which then very gradually became infected which has been a lot of fun to deal with this week um didn't think it was that bad until i went into my doctor this morning and showed him showed it to him and his first words were jesus wet that's a bad one uh so (laughs) you know when a doctor says that to you you kind of you know you're in for a treat with the rest of the appointment it's just when everything like that is done in that whimsical irish lyrical style that it just doesn't seem as serious as it probably actually is yeah it, it it doesn't seem that but you know then i had to uh take a load of antibiotics and try to get through a day's work which was great crack in and of itself but uh, look, I'm here now. I've uh, got my apartment pants on and I'm ready to talk about some games. Let's do this then. I would like to start us off this week, if that's okay with you. My, be my guest. Be my guest. Okay, so over the weekend, uh, I bought and then completed Kirby and the Rainbow Paintbrush, or Rainbow Curse, depending on which side of the Atlantic Ocean you seem to live on. And it's okay. Which is kind of a disappointment because... Nintendo games for the last 12 months or so, uh, kind of a lot of the first party stuff has really been hitting it out of the park, and this doesn't quite meet those lofty expectations that I was preparing myself for, and uh, and I find that uh, it's kind of a disappointment, but the standards have been set really high with stuff like Mario 3D World and Mario Kart and whatever else, um, but I mean, I came into this, I haven't really played Kirby games before, I've like briefly delve into them but not enough that I could come in, come into Rainbow Paintbrush with um, any real idea of what to expect uh, but I knew that it was a sequel to I think it was Canvas Curse for the DS and, which I'm uh, led to believe was, was quite a good game yes so I, I read about it on in the on reviews on reviewing websites you, um, you did an internet and figured out what it was about yeah you know <laughs> this is what you do and to be fair it has to be said that you could probably do a lot of doing the internet with Rainbow Paintbrush, because one of the biggest problems it has uh, to start with is that it's it's absolutely beautiful, which doesn't sound like a negative thing, but it kind of is because to play the game, you really have to spend the whole entire duration of the game looking at the game pad, um, because you use the stylus, for anyone who's never played the original or the new one, you use the stylus on the gamepad to make lines across the screen, uh, and that's kind of how you control Kirby. You don't use any actual input at all with the physical buttons it's it's all on the screen 
but that means that you can't really ever look at the actual TV to see what's going on, uh, which means that you don't get to see it in its kind of full 1080p full resolution, which is really disappointing because it's it's a beautiful game. The the claymation style is it it just it looks so nice. But you'll never get to see it unless you're going to watch it on a YouTube video or you're watching a friend play it. Uh, and that's kind of an inherent issue with you know the, the way the game is designed. And it's not so much of a problem when you're doing it on the DS. It's obviously, it's a bit of a problem when you're doing it in a slightly more upscaled fashion. Uh, the other issue with that kind of correlation between the DS and the Wii U is that holding the DS with one hand and playing with the stylus with the other... That's, you know, that's fine. Trying to do that with a Wii U gamepad in one hand and using the stylus with the other, a little bit more problematic. Your left hand or your right hand is going to go a little bit limp after a while. So you kind of either have to reduce it to shorter game sessions or you have to kind of set it up on your lap or play it on the table. And it's just, I don't think uh, the the thought process at the start of should we make a Kirby game like Canvas Quest, Canvas Curse, whatever it's called, uh, for the Wii U, should we actually do it or not? And there are parts of it that are really nice, and it's like, yeah, this definitely should have been done, but the actual kind of practicality sense of doing it was probably not as well thought out. But it's not entirely negative. It is an enjoyable game. I got a good kind of six or seven hours out of it. Um, some of the level design is quite innovative. Uh, Kirby can change into like a rocket, a submarine, and uh, it, you know it, there are some challenges to it as well. Some of it is in the actual design uh, mechanics, uh, of, of kind of squiggling lines across the screen, which gets a little bit crazy and a little bit hectic. But I'm certainly not going to say it's a bad game. I'm not going to say it's a game that I would have probably paid full price for with hindsight. Probably something that I'll have rented out for the weekend because it is a pretty short game. But, it, you know, it was fun. So I'm not going to put a big black cross over it. Um, I would say check it out, rent it. Uh, play it, or just try and grab yourself a copy of the original if you have a DS because it's probably the way really that kind of game should be played. It seems to be another one of these things like um, where it's just very clear that Nintendo had this great idea about we're going to have a gamepad and we're going to have you know, a home console and they just can't get the two together properly. They can't figure out a game that perfectly requires the TV and the gamepad together. And this just seems like a real game that has suffered greatly from them trying to force the functionality into it. Would you say that's fair? I mean, it's still like a very nice game to look at on the gamepad, um, but all the effort and work that is put into making the game look as lovely as it is is kind of wasted because, yeah, you just never really get to look at it in the way it should be. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that could be said about the Wii U in general and the gamepad and what its core functionality is. And, you know, I'm happy that they decided to take the risk of, of making a platform game a little bit differently and to really incorporate the gamepad. Because for the most part, when I first saw it, uh, saw the, the gamepad, I just presumed it was just a slightly expensive inventory uh, device. You know, I remember I played Zombie U, was the first Wii U game I played, and I was like, oh yeah, look, yeah, I, I can look at my inventory. And then I remember playing Wind Waker, I was like, oh yeah, look, this is my inventory, and great um and it's great obviously if you can't look at the tv and you you need to play your game on your device it's good for that so it's you know there are there are pros and cons to to the wii u in general um it's certainly not the most perfect console that's ever created which is why (laughs) they seem to be doing a sega and already working on the new one which that's a conversation for another day it's a long conversation for another day (laughs) yes but i do like 
I do like the game. Um, I know I've spent more time kind of critiquing it, but I think it's more for issues that aren't solely related to that one game, I would say. But yeah, it, it's still fun. It's still worth a crack at, I'd say. And, wh- and where can the internet read your uh, your thoughts on these matters to get ah, a plug in nice and early? Nice. So yeah, so for um, we have a Tumblr website uh, where I will be posting up the videos for these podcasts on YouTube onto the Tumblr website until I can figure out how the hell RSS feeds work. Um, at, well, if we even need to do it, because if there's only three people listening to each episode, it seems a bit pointless. Um, but yeah, uh, link to the cast.tumblr.com, I think it is. Um, we, we are going to start doing some written, wordy pieces, which might come in the form of short reviews or opinion pieces or all manner of stuff, depending on how long we decide to keep this gimmick up for. All kinds of good stuff. Mm. Uh, have you been playing anything else this week, Mark? I played the Splatoon demo. Oh, do tell. This yeah. is one I've been uh, interested in. Yeah, so for anyone that didn't know um, about Splatoon or what they were doing this week, uh, they had the demo available to play for free one-hour sessions. Uh, the first one was at four o'clock in the morning. Not entirely sure. I'm, I'm presuming that was playable between like North America and here, I'm guessing. I don't fucking know. Um, so I played the last session, which was at eight o'clock in the off in the evening of Saturday. And so, for anyone that doesn't know, it's um, the, well, the, the demo that was available was the uh, multiplayer mode, which is two teams of four on four, and it's it's a, a, an over the top shooter. Well, it, it's kind of an over the top shooter. It's a third person shooter, uh, and the idea is you have a map, and you want to cover as much of that map in your colours ink. And you have these humans or kids that can transform into squids. Um, and they have a variety of guns, depending on which one you want to pick. And yeah, you have to cover the area in, in ink. Uh, and you can also kill your opponents um, or send them back to their respawn point as well by using your weapons. And I really enjoyed it. It's really fun. It's a shame that there's only going to be about 10 people playing this game after about the first month of <laughs> it coming out. But it's a really cool concept, and I mean, I don't delve into online multiplayer too much, and even half an hour of Splatoon I was getting annoyed because I had one weapon, and I was being rubbish with it, and everyone was being good with other weapons, so then I picked that weapon, and then I was being rubbish with that. And uh, I think it's just more a general kind of comment about me. Um, But the weapons are really cool. There's like a a little uh, kind of Uzi-type machine gun that splatters short bursts of ink uh, there's a big fuck off roller uh, that you kind of roll along the floor and you can just run over your enemies which is really cool but the trade off is obviously they can shoot you from afar uh, the idea that when you have an area of your colour ink on the floor you can tap the I think it's the L2 button and you turn into your squid creature and you can kind of swim in the ink and you can use that to climb up the sides of walls and like into higher areas and it's really well put together, and um, it was a really cool way of approaching uh, the, the demo to have it available for people to play before launch, because that hour of playing it, and I think I played it a little bit at um, at Eurogamer last year, and I, you know I was really so. Well, I remember when I saw it at the E3 press conference, and I was like, "Yeah, that looks really cool. That's something a little bit different." And again, it's something that I'm glad that Nintendo have taken the risk to do this. I do worry. Just because of the install base of the Wii U, how many people will actually be playing this? But 
I guess we'll, we'll kind of see. But it's definitely, if you have a Wii U, it's definitely something you should at least have a look at. Uh, haven't played it a bit. Would you say that this kind of, this new idea, this new kind of first party concept, this um, idea of a team shooter on the Wii U is going to suffer a bit from the Wii U's complete lack of voice chat? Well, I mean, the whole voice chat thing, I've never really been sold on it. I don't need to listen to a bunch of 12-year-olds screaming at me through the the internet. Um, if, if you're that desperate to be talking to your friends, like, if I was going to play this with you, we could just call each other over Skype, and then we can talk to each other while playing it. You know, the, yeah. the, there are ways around it. And considering Nintendo's stance and policy on these things uh, when it comes to online multiplayer, for me, it doesn't really bother me. And if there are people out there that aren't going to play it just because of that, uh, I'm not business-minded orientated enough to say anything other than <laughs> go fuck yourself, so I really don't care. Um, obviously, that, that policy only gets you so far. Uh, maybe it's it's something that Nintendo should think about, maybe look more into, maybe see you know what the percentage of people actually playing it who, who actually buy it at launch. And if it is a really small core base of players playing it maybe think about would online chat would that maybe expand the amount of people that buy it i don't really think that's going to be the case yeah it's like it's you know you can find ways around it as you said but it is terribly handy like when i have my ps4 or my xbox one and i turn it on and like particularly with uh, the ps4 which i'm more familiar with um because i only just got an xbox one recently but um just being able to like stick the headphone jack into the controller right in front of me and be able to have my settings to prior- prioritize chat so I'm not hearing the aforementioned 12 year old screaming at people when I'm playing FIFA. I'm just like talking to another friend of mine who may be playing FIFA with me, maybe playing another game, stuff like that. It's just kind of like there are ways around it, and obviously, you know relatively tech-savvy people like us who would have kind of a tablet or another device in the room that might have Skype. Sure, it's great and convenient for us, but it's just kind of another annoying kind of... Having to do that is just slightly frustrating sometimes, I find. It's not It's not the thing that will make me decide, okay, I'm going to buy Splatoon, I'm not going to buy Splatoon. But it's just kind of like there'll be a moment where I turn on the Wii U and go to boot up Splatoon, and I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake, I'll get the tablet out now, sign into Skype, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I mean... it. <laughs> Like, there's a stereotype of what you'd think of a, a typical Wii U owner or a Nintendo owner in this day and age of being a 12-year-old child or whatever. And I don't think that's necessarily going to be the case, but I can see where Nintendo's stance and policy from, you know, the, the kind of core demographic that they think, or we think, that they kind of work towards. I can kind of see where they might be a bit uneasy about having online chat for that you know, particular thing. Uh, I, I certainly think there's more of a chance of I'm going to get screened by a 12 year old or 15 year old, sorry, um, playing FIFA than I am playing Splatoon. But you know, no situation's perfect. <laughs> uh, so at that point, uh, I might just uh, segue nicely into the games I've been playing this week. Please, um, please. I've had again. It's been a busy enough week, so I haven't dipped too heavily into anything, which I fear is going to be a mantra for the next couple of weeks until I'm on my summer holidays. But uh, I've played bits and bobs. Um, uh, one that I want to kind of get out of the way because it's uh, one I've been playing for ages and love so much because I've been getting back into Smash a little. Uh, Smash Brothers on the Wii U. <coughs> because in the last uh, week or two, we've gotten finally the long promised uh, Mewtwo download for us suckers who went and got uh, both the 3DS version and the Wii U version. 
so I wanted to try that out, have a few more fights. It's a great kind of... Um, Smash Brothers, it's not the most uh, skill-based fighting game you're going to find. Um, the evidence being is that I've actually won fights on it. Um, and I am by no means a fighting game expert. But It's right, like, because Smash Bros. isn't a fighting game, so nothing to worry about. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a brawler. It's a lot of fun. Um, but, like, it's... The, the Mewtwo download, and they're going to... They, they have this poll open to download more characters and stuff like that, and it's just kind of... I, this is one where they like they nail the DLC for Mario Kart, where there's extra tracks and things like that, but for Smash Brothers, it's, always, it's already so kind of bloated with characters. I think there's something in the neighborhood of 52 characters when all of them are unlocked. Like, half the cast of fucking Fire Emblem, um, and some Xenoblade in there, and some, like... Olimar. Olimar is in there. For reasons beyond my fucking understanding, Olimar is in there. Just because it's like, hey, look. Look what's at the back of the Nintendo First Party cupboard. Uh, Pikmin, let's figure out a way to get that in there. But, um, no, the game's a lot of fun. Uh, I really enjoy it. Um, kind of, once you find your... For the first while, like, you feel lost, and then you find your kind of... Like with any fighting game, like, you find your... Um, the fighter that you're slightly less awful with. And uh, it's a lot of fun then. It's a real kind of... Like a lot of the games on the Wii U, I find, I don't play them a lot when I'm on my own, but when there's, like, a few people over, a couple of beverages have been ingested, that it's a, it's a great one to be able to crack out and everybody has a lot of fun with. Um, other stuff I've been playing... Uh, like I said, I got an Xbox One there very recently and got a couple of games with it, and one game I am absolutely blown away by, and were it not for the fact that it's quite an expensive console, would single-handedly justify why I bought it is Sunset Overdrive. Uh, which is a game by Insomniac, who were the guys most well-known, I would imagine, for uh, in the last generation for making the Resistance series on PlayStation, which, um, like, people had mixed opinions about. Um, but kind of, like, it's very rare that I get into a shooter. I don't play shooters online at all. I, I don't take multiplayer shooters, anything like that, mainly because I'm awful at them. Um, and get shot to bits immediately when I try to play online. But I enjoyed the campaigns on those, so I was kind of curious to see what they were doing. And the kind of the, the trailers and everything for Sunset Overdrive made me think, you know, this might be my kind of game. And it is. It's really, even though it's kind of like every second game is one of these. It's a third-person open-world action game. It's just. It's very hard to describe. It's so weird. It's so funny. It has a real wit about it. The Art, is, the art to it is just fucking incredible. the The soundtrack is real kind of like uh, almost punky. It's got it's like more so than a lot of kind of you know uh, new IPs that I played in a while. Like it's very kind of brave and confident in what it is. You know, it comes out with a real kind of weird off the beaten track style and doesn't really give a shit if you like it or not because it's just gonna plow through and get weirder and weirder as it goes on. Uh, not very far into it, but it is an awful lot of fun so far. Well, what kind of game... Because I've briefly looked at the gameplay of it. What exactly is it? What do you do? Um, It's like if... Like, gameplay-wise, it's like if Saints Row had an illicit affair with a Tony Hawk game and had a child. Because it is, like, the silliness and the open-world action of a Saints Row game, but it's you grind rails the whole time you 
you basically, you play this guy, your created character, who comes into the city where an energy drink has turned all the people in the city into zombies, basically. Rage zombies throwing, like, weird goo at you or just attacking you. Different kinds, like, you know, like any other zombie game, really. There's different kind of grades of them from your kind of, your normal walkers up to your spitters, your heavies, that kind of thing. But you kind of then, um, you're encouraged to, while you're attacking them, rather than just kind of meeting them face-to-face on the ground or anything like that, take on a group of enemies like you would in, say, a Shadow of Mordor or anything like that, um, you're encouraged to try and up your combos by grinding on rails around them and figuring out, like, interesting ways to try and kill them from up above. And just kind of, the, the whole emphasis of the game is to never stop moving, never stop running, never stop kind of grinding, flipping, switching guns switching kind of your your amps which are kind of like your upgrades in the game and like it's just kind of it has a saints roll sensibility about it in that like a lot of the weapons in it are just fucking ridiculous like one of the early guns you unlock is a vinyl uh, record launcher nice which is just fucking brilliant like it is like it's just uh, it's just a lot of fun does it have a, a a a jet set vibe about it Yes, it it very much does, like, a very kind of, like, these are people who, like, it's not, it isn't to Jet Set Radio what I described last week as Axiom Verge being to Super Metroid, but it's certainly kind of, there's some Jet Set Radio in there. There's It's more of an influence than a full-on love letter. Yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly what it is. It's just, like, I can't wait to get into it more. Um, It's kind of like, it's been my introduction to the Xbox one because I've never owned a Microsoft system before, so it's kind of like trying to get used to not holding a DualShock 4 or a Nintendo controller is slightly weird, but I'm really enjoying it so far, and it's kind of myself and my, my housemate Brian have been playing it, and he's kind of been watching me play it, and kind of just in knots laughing. It's just, it's a very funny game, it's a lot of fun, like the Saints Row games, they're not works of art that are going to be kind of like remembered for generations hence, but at the same time, like it's a hell of a lot of fun to just go and blast the crap out of some en- energy drink zombies with your with a record player launcher. Like it's it's great times. Other stuff I've been playing, just a couple of quick ones, and then we'll move on to the news. Um, I played a tiny bit of um, a couple of the PS Plus games for this month that I mentioned last week. Uh, Race to Sun. I played very very little of um, because I am really really garbage at. There's there's a real theme in this show about me describing different genres of games I'm terrible at. It's it's almost like I never played any before the first episode, but I assure you, I've been playing the, all my life. It's it the saddens me that I'm terrible at it. It's the Dave yeah, Bryan confessional show. It's, uh, look, I'm, I'm half decent at FIFA. I'll, I'll take that to my grave, but like, <laughs> we're going to run through a lot of genres of games on this that I am garbage at. I might just get them out of the way at the top of one episode and just list, you know, this genre, this genre, this genre I'm terrible at. But, um... No, Race to Sun, it's it's fun. It's kind of like, would you, have you played it, Mark? Yes, I have played it. Would you describe it as kind of like an endless runner? Uh, yeah, kind of. Um, it's, it, no, yeah, definitely. It has that kind of vibe about it. Um, so it's, I know we spoke a little little bit about it on the last show. Um, yeah. It has that, well, it, it's not exactly like Star Fox because that, you had a little bit more free uh, movement to kind of move up and down with this. You sort of, it's, like a fixed rail and you can just move left or right uh, and the idea is yeah. you've the sun in the background and that's kind of coming down and you need to race the sun um, yeah. and you can collect like pickups to delay when the sun comes down um, and you have to avoid obstacles and it gets faster and faster and it's 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 a kind of pretty simple 
uh, core mechanic and it, it kind of works in its execution. Uh, the, the key thing for me, and I feel kind of bad saying it because, as I said last week, I did interview the developers about it, uh, about the game, but I do find that just the general UI of it is quite... It doesn't look as professional and as polished as it probably could. Just some of the menu interfaces and and whatnot just don't look... You know, I'm not expecting anything grand. It's a two-man development team, but it, it doesn't look finished, is what I would say. Yeah, no, no, I, I get you. Now, like I said, I've only played, like, I think I've gotten through a couple of phases on it, like, and it is, um, the kind of unfinished look to it, I, I, I can't quite decide if, like, it's entirely deliberate or it's just a kind of, like, at a certain point, um, a decision was made based on the resources they had to kind of go for this art style. Um, I mean, like, the actual art style of the actual game itself, I have no issues with that. I'm just talking about, like, the actual general yeah. interface when kind of going through the menus. Just the, yeah, just the UI. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I know what you mean, yeah, yeah. No. But uh, I'll, I'll probably play it, like, it's a, you know, it's a free game. I'm not going to complain about it, so, like, I'll probably dip into that a bit more. Yeah. Uh, but the I'm, game... Go on, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, it does the simple things like you... Uh, It'll give you objectives, get so far without crashing, perform 10 jumps in a, a race or whatever, and you can kind of build up your ship through that way and collect like a magnet to collect more of the, the points, pick up pyramid things, whatever the hell they are. So it does uh, a lot of the kind of standard design tropes that you would expect from like an endless runner. Um, but as you said, it, it's free on PS Plus this month, and it's not a bad little game, so give it a look. Yeah, definitely. The, what, the game I'm really excited to talk about this week that I've been playing, and it's one I've played in the last couple of days, speaking of free PS Plus games, Ether Goddamn One, Mark. <laughs> right? Tell me about so, it. So last week when I was putting together the news for the show, and I was like, oh, it's the week where PS Plus games are announced. I was like, okay, right, I'll go on to the, the PlayStation blog, and I'll pull down the list of games we're getting this week and see what that's about. And one of them is this game called Ether One, which I'm just like, okay, the trailer looks interesting. It was very kind of... Almost indecipherable. Um, the trailer, there's, it's one of those games where like things aren't quite what it seems, sort of a thing. Uh, on the face, it's um, a first-person puzzle game. The game is developed in the Unreal Four engine, I believe. So, animation-wise, and it's not going to be the the last time I compare it to this, but there are hints of Bioshock about this game. Yeah. Um, and I don't mean to like put it up on a pedestal already by comparing it to like two of my favorite games of the uh, of the last generation. We will not speak about Bioshock Two; that never happened. But it's certainly a Bioshock feel to it. You, the whole kind of um, the premise of the game. We'll, we'll start there. The premise of the game is that you work for a memory retrieval company called the Ether Institute of Telepathic Medicine. I believe they're called. You are an investigator who goes into the minds of people diagnosed with dementia and you attempt to retrieve lost memories in it, in an attempt to kind of rebuild their minds in the real world. Okay? Yep. So it's kind of a wacky premise at the start, but once you kind of go, okay, fuck it, I'm on board with that, things start playing out very normally. You go into the first memory sequence, um, which is based in a mine. Now, I don't want to give, because it's such a new game, and I, I know a lot of people wouldn't have gotten to it or even thought to download it, I'm not going to kind of um, spoil things too much. But during the course of this, kind of, you're going around and you're solving some simple puzzles. Like, there, are, um, there's kind of two layers to the game, which I really appreciate. Um, the uh, There's the layer where you can just decide, right, I'm just going to play it through and figure out the some of her memories, go through the main story and complete it. Or you can go and kind of, 
there's optional puzzles these kind of there's projector puzzles where throughout each area you'll find kind of disassembled projectors on the ground which is a hint to you that there's a puzzle in the area a real kind of weird not obvious at all puzzle kind of reminds me like and not to make this my gimmick but reminds me of harder silent hill puzzles where you're just kind of they're just fucking weird and when you solve them you put together the projector and it plays an additional memory from this person's mind so i appreciate that there's kind of like a hidden kind of higher difficulty for people who kind of fancy themselves a bit of a a puzzle game player but when you're in the first area this this mine that i mentioned i'm kind of playing through it i'm like okay this is a decent puzzle game it's not blowing my mind or anything like that and almost as soon as i thought that mark i'm not gonna lie the the game goes fucking apeshit bananas <laughs> it goes absolutely mental uh, and i will send you the link because i shared this video to my uh, youtube channel uh, over the weekend it goes so nuts and reminded me so much without kind of and i'm not saying this in a way that they're ripping it off but in a kind of like a fond way it reminds me a lot of bioshock infinite it goes that like fucking berserk all of a sudden right like to the extent where i would not be surprised if the ending of this game is that the lutesses had something to do with it it from that moment then i was completely fucking hooked it is it looks great the story is very very intriguing the one thing i have to say that really is absolutely frustrating about this game well obviously the puzzles are frustrating but in a good way they're very challenging Okay, where you kind of, particularly those optional puzzles, you will not get those optional puzzles by guessing. You will not even find the optional puzzles unless you're looking for them. You will get the optional puzzles by paying close attention to every note, everything that's left around the game. Something else that should be pointed out at this point is that you meet no people. There are no other characters walking around in these memories except you, and you have your boss from the the Ether Institute kind of coming through uh, your controller and into your uh, kind of into your earpiece in the game, I suppose. It It's weird. It creates a really cool atmosphere of kind of you feel really lonely walking through it, that you're that you legitimately are walking through these people's thoughts because through the kind of, you know, the, the PS4 has the speaker in the controller. So you get kind of random noises from the memory as you start piecing it together you get random noises start filtering through the microphone really low that you kind of have to almost lean into the controller to listen out for it it's that kind of weird the thing that it really falls down on because i am absolutely loving it do not get me wrong but the problem is that for some of the optional puzzles i keep encountering a game crashing bug oh really it is killing me because <laughs> i want to play the fuck out of this game i want to get the platinum i want to like i just want to be absorbed into this world but i kept getting this game crash when i was looking for a particular item for a particular puzzle i'm not going to get very specific but it would just crash and crash and crash and crash and like i've had it with games where games sometimes just randomly crash you do something weird and it happens and you reboot it but this was happening five and six times in a row doing the exact same thing so i went and googled it and um in fairness to the ether one team they already have a patch submitted for approval because this was not unique to me this was happening all across the board with a lot of different puzzles like that 
So kind of there was a uh, on the PlayStation forum, people had been reporting the bug, and they've already submitted the patch for approval. So it should. They're optimistic, saying the patch will be out tomorrow, which is Tuesday the twelfth. And I hope it is because I just want to keep playing the goddamn game. It's fantastic. It's just such a shame that there's like uh, it looks like the better part of a dozen similar instances of repeated game crashes for things like that. But it's just honestly like if it wasn't for that. I'd be hard pushed not to have it in my top five games I've played this year so far. That's... But again, it's kind of like there's not been a lot of no no games out this year yeah. so far. So I don't know if that is a stamp of approval or kind of a, a comment on how few fucking games there have been so far. But it's a health, healthy statement to make, and uh, I mean it's good to see that um, patches like that are being kind of picked up and uh, and rectified in in sharpest fashion. It sounds interesting. It sounds like something I need to you have know, a look at. It's a tiny studio as well. Uh, when I looked up, when I was looking around for the the kind of the news on the bugs, uh, it seems that there's only about five people working for them. Uh, White Paper Studios, or White Paper Games, whichever one it is. Um, and it's only available on PS4 and Mac at the moment. Uh, well, from... I have a Mac, so I'm so weird. Hey. Yeah, sort. But it's been get, like it's been getting like ridiculously good ratings. Like it's got a Metacritic score of 82. Destructoid gave it a nine. Um, four star from joystick like it's it's really fucking good and like if you have a PS Plus account and a PS4 you have no fucking excuse for depriving yourself of what will be one of the most unique experiences you'll have all year I'd, I'd almost guarantee that um, because I can't see anything else that's coming out really this year that's going to completely subvert what you think the game is going to be when you start it it's just been like it's a hell of a fucking game it really is uh you have me sold <laughs> well, yeah that's my sales pitch i got a job for white paper games there you go so yeah. cool <laughs> uh shall we move on to the news i think we shall and we'll try not to get into uh a massive love letter to silent hill this week that keeps us talking for about half an hour but that <laughs> said the first item on the news this week is a follow-up from our discussion on uh, PT last week. Not only now has PT been removed from the PlayStation Store for people who haven't downloaded it before, but now, even if you've downloaded it before, you can't get it anymore. It's been completely scrubbed from the PSN library. So we're going to have like a Flappy Bird situation where there's going to be people trying to fucking sell their PS4s that have PT on it for God knows what sum of money. I if See, now with that, I mean... The first things to say is if anyone buys a PS4 for that sort of money just to get PT, then I have I've lost all faith in the human race. <laughs> Mark, in fairness, there were sums being reported of people paying for iPhones that had Flappy Bird that I don't even want to think about. <laughs> like I, I'm going to say, like if you're going to spend over the odds for something with a game preloaded on it, I would sooner spend money on PT than I would on Flappy Bird. If we're going to make alright, if, we, if we're going to make that comparison, then yes, fair enough, I would rather have PT than Flappy Bird. I still feel that my point stands. Oh, it does. It, it certainly does. <laughs> uh, like, the thing the thing that I take away from this story is, like, fucking why? Like, like really? What? What is there? Why? <laughs> like, I know Konami have been making a series of decisions lately that have made me think why, but, like, really, you're going to, like, on top of everything else, on top of, like, probably showing Kojima the back door once uh, MGS5 is released, on top of cancelling Silent Hills, on top of all this kind of crazy stuff that's going on with Konami, it's like, you're, 
you're literally losing nothing by keeping that demo on the store. What? I just don't understand it. I, I like to call it Konami doing a Konami. Yeah, um, it's just sad, you know? Like like I said last week, it's one of the like the best horror game experiences I've ever had. And it's just kind of depressing that now there's going to be a lot of people... Because I don't know how many people, kind of relative to the amount of people that own PS4s, have, have it downloaded. But now, kind of, there's going to be no, no new PT players. There's going to be obviously people will find ways to wacky air quotes purchase it online once yeah. somebody eventually cracks the PS4. But um, well, look, the thing is, I I mean, I don't know what the costs are involved for um, something being kept up on the PS network. I don't know what. It is in place between Sony and companies and whatnot, but I can kind of see the mentality that if there is any cost involved, and it's not like Konami have the money to work with at the moment, there's not much point of them keeping up what is a demo for a game that now does not exist anymore. Well, like, it still exists as a perfectly good, um, like, mini-game in and of itself. Like, all you would have to do really to make it not Silent Hills anymore is lop off the closing video sequence. What? <laughs> and it's just like like that's literally it. Apart from that, like it, it, you remember when the the teaser dropped, no one had a fucking breeze it was Silent Hill and still wouldn't if it weren't for that ending video. Yeah, true. And the game doesn't really suffer from not having that video at the end. It's still an incredible experience, you know what I mean? No, but again, as I said, if there is any cost-cutting measures that can be uh, made from doing what they've done, I can see why Konami would do it. Yeah, I'm just I'm just gonna go out there and say fuck them. That's, that's, that's all I'm gonna say because <laughs> Jesus Christ, I love PT. But let's not get back into. Well, that I'm again. glad that I've given you a platform for you can so you can do such a thing. Yeah, and let's kind of segue, not quite out of Konami, but we'll go to an, another Konami uh, hilarity story. One of the voice actresses on. Metal Gear Solid came out and said last week, around the time that we recorded, and I completely missed the story, she had claimed that Kojima was fired from Konami. Okay? So, this is the guy who, like, his name is removed from the products. They keep insisting, swearing blind, he's not gone because they're afraid probably what's going to happen to the pre-orders of uh, Metal Gear Solid Five if they announce the guy who makes it all is fucking gone. So, your one comes out and she says, says a tweet to the effect of... You know, he's gone, but please don't cancel your orders. <laughs> um, please, please, please. And then very soon after, she retracted those statements and suddenly decided that a man she was stone fucking convinced was fired. Now all of a sudden she said, oh, no, no, he's not being fired at all. So, like, I just... like Konami are just a mindfuck. Like, if it, like, if it weren't for the fact that it's not a clever like, thing at all, I would almost swear this is a massive mind game from Kojima himself, like a viral marketing campaign. Like, it's right up his street of doing something this fucking weird. But, it's just, like, it's just that the company is just sad. It really is. Well, I mean, to sort of tag along on to the, uh, the side of that, I don't know if you saw <clears throat> the pictures today of the uh, toys that are coming out with the new Metal Gear Solid game that uh, feature uh, female dolls with squeezable breasts or, or breasts that I, are of a softer texture, if you will. You know, I saw a thumbnail on like my IGN app or something like that, and I just went, you know what? I could just 
as easily live out the rest of my life without clicking that story. <laughs> and at this point, I just have to believe that this is just one big fuck-off troll job by Hideo Kojima. Do you know what? If it is, I will I will give him a standing ovation. Like, at this point, it's, it's the whole... Uh kind of quote of some men want to watch the world burn and I feel that yeah. uh, Kojima is currently at that point like if that's the case then I can't wait to see the crazy shit show that comes out in September <laughs> I really can't yeah yeah but I, hey hopefully this is um, this will be a kind of follow up story every single week so we have something to talk about it seems like it will be it seems like they literally cannot stop the thing from springing leaks at the moment so we'll, we'll see what happens we'll, we'll keep an eye on it although you know you don't really need to keep a close eye. No. Um, so we'll talk about a couple more news stories before we get out of here and move on to our uh, our book club. Uh, Nintendo have kind of, sort of, but not really at all, uh, given some details about this mysterious membership scheme. Now, like, I think we mentioned very briefly last week, Nintendo's relationship with the internet has been um, hysterically funny. Uh, that is the only way I can really describe it. They are really like your grandfather who has just discovered what a Facebook is for the first time. You know what I mean? That's yeah. like, it certainly reminds me of when my grandfather discovered Facebook. It's like that they're just kind of learning this internet stuff as it's going along, as if the internet just became a thing last week. Um, but they're obviously trying to, with this kind of, they've gotten rid of Club Nintendo while well, they're phasing Club Nintendo out. Which was this, I, for people who aren't familiar with Club Nintendo, you would buy a Nintendo game, whether it's a DS game or a Wii, ge- a Wii U game, you would get an unreasonably long pin code to put in to then fill out a five-page questionnaire to get some points to get you some Mario-themed stationery. Is, have I summed up Club Nintendo there? In a nutshell, that's pretty much, yeah, that's pretty much yeah. it. It was really kind of like, we're not for the fact that I buy an awful lot of Nintendo games. It really isn't worth it. Uh, but obviously, the thing they're aiming for is something more like an Xbox Live, or uh, particularly, I think, the real kind of standard bearer in the industry at the moment is PS Plus. Yeah, It's the best value for money, uh, for me anyway. But you get like minimum two free games per, per Sony platform per month for €50 Euro a year. And like I've gotten... Since I've gotten my PS4, I have gotten Resogun, which for some people is still the best game on PS4. Uh, I've gotten Mercenary Kings, which I love the hell out of, and we played a bit when you last visited. Um, and just this month, Ether One, which I'm madly in love with. So, like, it's a fantastic deal. I get games left, right, and center for my Vita as well. And my PS3, which gathers dust in my grandmother's house, uh, also has a load of free games waiting for it next time I'm inclined to turn it on when I'm over there. But um, all they've really announced is that they've said, yes, we're working on it. And yes, it's going to connect to a bunch of different systems. So the kind of the environment they're talking about is that it will connect to 3DS, it will connect to Wii U, it'll connect to your PC, it'll connect to your smartphone, connect to your tablet, and of course this mysterious dedicated game system codenamed NX. Yeah, well, I think the key, the key thing here is um, there was a lot of people decrying that the the relationship between the 3DS and the Wii U was kind of like the relationship between Kojima and Konami, and that they really needed to change that and you know you see what you can do with your ps vita and your ps3 and your ps4 
Uh, and I really think that Nintendo have just seen, okay, well, we're gonna, we've now announced that we're going to be um, having games on smartphones, tablets, or whatever. We, we really need to, you know, really bring this all together under one roof. And I think it's a smart thing to do. Uh, I do believe that there, there was a, there was a nice charm to what Club Nintendo was, but ultimately it was pretty fucking pointless in the long run. Yeah, it was like. Club Nintendo to me was like if Mario opened a lemonade stand on the street. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, that's adorable. It's a nice try at something, yeah. but I'm just going to go buy my Coke in a in normal shop. You know and, what I mean? And it's... for Nintendo, that's not really how they usually do these things. They're usually pretty big, bold, and brash about something, well, anything that they'll do. And they usually, like, I don't think people give Nintendo enough credit for being pretty fucking out there with some of their ideas yeah because I think, everyone um, always just thinks nintendo oh mario oh zelda uh metroid but if you really yeah. think about it i mean you just fucking look at the wii for crying out loud yeah i think um i don't know whether it's oh, i'm trying to think of the podcast i'm i'm thieving this idea from whether it's a four play or nintendo voice chat on ign or something like that that i listen to but someone like constantly when nintendo come out with these nutso ideas Constantly refers back to like that Nintendo more so, way more so than anybody else in the industry is still like the crazy toy maker. Yeah, you know what I mean. They're still like you know what I mean. You can pretty much it is hard for something Sony does in their first party to surprise you. Even even harder with Microsoft because Microsoft don't have that kind of the long lineage where we know what to expect from them. But um. With Nintendo, Nintendo will still do things from time to time where you're like, just fucking what? <laughs> like, what? Why? Like, and in a good way, I mean it. Like, Mario Maker that's coming out this year. That's something that, like, you never would have thought that they would hand over the creation tools to Mario to the player in a very little big planet sort of way. Where, like, it kind of, it almost shits the bed on the idea of them ever being able to make a 2D Mario again. Like the the new Super Mario Brothers U and stuff like that, because now there's going to be a massive library of user created content online. So that, it's a fucking crazy idea to do, but they've done it. I'm like, I am so excited for Mario Maker. I can't even tell you. They do crazy stuff like the I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Yeah, like Splatoon that you talked about earlier on. It's like who would have thought Nintendo of all people would just go? Do you know what? Let's let's do a third person shooter. Why not? <laughs> you know? Like, Nintendo are the ones that are constantly, like, pointing towards the back of the field, saying that that's where they're going to hit the ball. And they they try it. It's, like, it's it's definitely got to be admired. Uh, yeah, or even, like, you look at them taking over, like, buying uh, Bayonetta 2, which, you know, would have never seen the light of day otherwise. Just Speaking of like crazy that. fucking ideas. <laughs> yeah. Um, we'll see how it works. Uh, you know, Club Nintendo was a nice idea, but I felt was a little uninspired. Hopefully this will just kind of bring everything together, if nothing else. Certainly between the 3DS and the Wii U and the next system, which I'm 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 going to call the new cast for the time being. <laughs> and speaking of, uh, to, to move into our next news story, speaking of like crazy ideas that only Nintendo would do, Nintendo have announced a partnership with Universal Studios theme parks. Yes, they fucking have. <laughs> And, like, as I put in our show notes here, eight-year-old me flipped his fucking lid when he read this story. Because it's like, do you want to go on an adventure with Link? Hell yes, I do. 
you know, do you want to go hang out with Mario for an afternoon? Where do I sign? You know what I mean? I just like I kind of threw my money at my laptop screen as soon as I read that story. Well, uh, let me um, put it to you like this. I mean, you you've seen uh, pictures of me over the last couple of years being able to hang out with a, a life-sized a giant version of Pikachu uh, or a person one in of, a Pikachu outfit. Here's here's a thing, and this will segue into another one of our interests. But very briefly, better hugger Pikachu, Pikachu or Kevin Steen? Oh, uh, Kevin Steen. Uh, he had, okay. you know, he could actually get his arms around me. Pikachu's got those short, stubby arms. So there's any. <laughs> I was doing the hugging in in that picture, um, but I was just as happy to you know be a part that's, of that experience. A, a fair assessment. Folks. Yeah, but I certainly like some of the ideas. I'm trying to think what I mean. I feel there's a, a Kid Icarus roller coaster in there somewhere that would replicate the uh, the last game and will probably give you as much of a headache and make you sick. Um, I feel there's some something in there with Wario. There's ah, oh, there's so many ideas they can work with. Uh, like like even just like I can I can just think of like simple kind of lo-fi kind of carnivores like a test your strength with Little Mac. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, oh my god, like because Nintendo, this is the thing like Sony couldn't come out and like I love Sony. The PS4 is the console I play the most because well, obviously it's the one that's up in my room uh, that's nearest to me. I am I have a borderline addiction with FIFA that I'll have to work out with a therapist at some point in the future. But Nintendo are the one of all the kind of the, the studios in the world really that have such a history, such a lineage, such a library of first-party content that they have, they've barely begun to scratch the surface of merchandising. You know what I mean? Like, when they brought out Amiibo, Amiibo was, like, the first time that there was proper, like, high-grade figurines of some of your favourite characters from when you were a kid. And, like, I have... Like, if I had 5% less restraint than I do... I would be swimming in Amiibos. <laughs> you know what I mean? I like Because I was just like, you know, oh, figurines, this is Skylanders kind of crap, I, I'm not interested. Oh, they have Toon Link, do they? Oh, they have Mega Man, do they? Oh, they have Little Mac, do they? And I do have one Amiibo, but it was, it did come free with Mario Party, and it's the kind of, it's the Mario Party Mario, and they are incredibly well-made figurines, and it's just kind of thing where it's like, Nintendo have like a potential kind of market for these kind of when they start going into merchandising or these kind of partnerships where they can make all the money in the world <laughs> because there are suckers like us, Mark, yeah. who will pay for anything with a Nintendo logo slapped on it. Well, they've not dragged me down into the Amiibos yet, and I'm I'm holding fast on that one. But the moment that they announce, I, I mean, I don't know how they'll do it over there. Just incorporate stuff throughout Universal Parks. Well, what I would hope is they just have an area that is Nintendo Land. And like, yep, fucking give me a week there, I'm good, I'm grand. Mark, I'm just saying there's a fantastic idea for like a video feature of us going to this. <laughs> there, There is fantastic room well, hopefully, for some video content there. Hopefully we'll be sponsored by then and someone will pay us to go there. Exactly, yeah. But it's just, ah, oh, it's a fantastic idea. It's so good. Like, I just, I am... The the child in me is just so giddy about this idea. Like it'll be year, two years, God knows how long before we actually see anything materialize. Yeah. But it's just it's one of those things where like sometimes Nintendo do a thing where it's the voice chat thing we already talked about, or the kind of the just their general relationship with the internet where you think like what the fuck are they thinking? But then there are other decisions like this, like Amiibo, where you're like. They are still as sharp as ever. They still well, know where the money is. I mean, I wonder, like, with decisions that they do, 
where some of them come from, whether it's from the the Western offices or whether it's from the Japanese side of, of Nintendo uh, and, you know, where they, these decisions actually come from. Because I feel that a, a relationship between Nintendo and Universal Studios would, I would presume, would be, you know, more of a Western... Uh, you know, saying that Reggie would have probably come. I was going to say every, everybody's best mate, Reggie. Yeah, um, but stuff like the Amiibos. Well, the Amiibos could probably have been a working relationship between the two sides. It's you know, there's there's so much, so much of a bigger picture when it comes to that kind of thing that I sometimes think that people don't look into. But anyway, that's that's my two cents on that. <coughs> uh, yeah, Nintendo Land, two years time. Yep. I can't wait. I can't wait. We'll move on to the final news story, and I'm going to throw this one over to you because. Uh, I have never really played this genre of game all that much. Really? As, uh, kind of, yeah, I, I just kind of missed me, and uh, as we get into this, I will explain why. But, uh, Mark, do you want to talk about Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 5, do you? I mean, I, I want to talk about why the fuck it's called Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 5 when, um, <laughs> at last, what, well, the last game, I believe, was, was it Project 8? Did Project 8 come first, or was it that awful Pro- Tony Hawk's? Ride. You were talking to the wrong guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I realised this. But um, there's been a number of Tony Hawk's games, and I know I've certainly played more than four of them. So I'm not really sure where they come up with this idea from, but I guess it's better than just saying, fuck it, we'll just call it Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, and we'll just reboot the whole series, because rebooting and remastering is the kind of thing we're doing at the moment, and they've already kind of remastered the first one. So whatever. I am a big fan of the Tony Hawk's. Well, I was a big fan of the Tony Hawk series, and then they became a little bit redundant. And then Skate came along and was more, well, it was more sim-like, but not to the point that it was boring. It, it found a kind of healthy balance and was just doing everything right that Tony Hawk's was doing wrong. Either way, Tony Hawk's is a big part of my childhood of gaming, um, and you know, it was just this really awesome blend of just kind of punk rock and uh, just really solid gameplay. Um, my biggest issue is, do we get Imagine Dragons on this game, or <laughs> Bastille, or some nonsense? That's my biggest concern here, because music is quite terrible at the moment, but again, this is yeah. not a music podcast. Again, um, the majority of the time I play FIFA, I play it with the volume so far down, until I start the actual game, because... I don't need to hear Kasabian in my video games. Thankfully, the era of Kasabian being pretty much every year on at least like either Pro Evo or FIFA seems to be at an end for now. I hate to jinx things, but uh, that seems to be over. But it's been replaced by even more kind of indistinguishable dross. For the oh, good. Part. Um, I will say that some of the pictures they've released... It... I mean, I'm, I'm no graphics fiend by any means, but... It does look like, uh, at best, uh, a half-shoddy attempt at a PS2 game. Um, I'm I'm literally just looking at them now. Wow. Yeah, and I I think... Yeah, so they've announced that it's PS4, Xbox One, PS3, and Xbox 360. Um, I really feel at this point they could have just had them announced as for... I say current gen, next gen, whatever you want to call it. But PS4 and Xbox One, and really just focused on that. And I think that a lot of games should really start think, be thinking about doing that, just because I think they're really sacrificing certain things that I can't think off the top of my head. Yeah, but I, I think that I think for a lot of developers, the problem in making that kind of decision that we're just going to develop for you know Xbox One, PS4, is the fact that still like even though they're 
both consoles are outselling their predecessors, like the Xbox One, despite lagging well behind the PS4, is still outselling the Xbox 360 at this point in its life cycle. Yeah. Uh, PS4, obviously, because they were completely... The PS3 was hobbled out of the gate by being €600. Euro. Mm-hmm. Um, the PS4 is just crushing it at the moment, despite not really having any games. The problem for developers is that still the install base for Xbox 360 and PS3 is fucking massive by comparison. Yeah, there, you know what I mean. Yeah. You're like to to say that it's going to be a PS4 exclusive or an Xbox One exclusive is sacrificing the majority of your potential market size. Potentially, which but... like is is a re- like especially if you're like outside the first party kind of system. Yeah. The, the, like, where if it's Sony, they can afford to take the hit by making things exclusive for PS4, like, like Bloodborne. But outside that, with third party, like, they, at the end of the day, like, much as, you know, the people that are working directly on the games love games, you know, that's why they're in the business for the most part, the company's gotta look at the bottom line. And you, it's really hard to go to the money men and a developer and argue that we should cut off the majority of our potential market size. It's a fair point for which I have no real argument with, so I'm going to agree and move on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see how it is. Uh, the Tony Hawk's games, they kind of lost their luster along the way, and they decided to add some fucking awful skateboard peripheral that really just <laughs> pretty much blew up in their faces. We'll see. Um, who the hell's even making it, actually? Because Neversoft have gone under now, so... Oh, it's been real... Developed by Robo Mondo, who previously made... Oh, so the... oh, they made Tony Hawk Ride. So, yeah, I have no fucking faith whatsoever in this. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. You've gone from being really excited to really depressed throughout the course of this news story. <laughs> I appreciate you taking us all on the journey with you. I like to bring in my range of emotions every now and again. You know how I am with these things. <laughs> so I suppose that's, uh, that's the end of the news, really. Yeah. Um, and uh, let us move nicely into our final segment, which is the uh, Link to the Cast Book Club. Okay, so it was my game this week for the Link to the Past book club, which I, I need to keep kind of looking at it on the page. I keep nearly saying Link to the Past. I'm not, I'm not quite used to this yet. <laughs> but, I mean, we've uh, been saying that for, you know, a fair few years now, so... In fairness, yeah. Um, so the Link to the Cast book club I announced last week because I was shocked at your lack of kind of um, fond memories of the game. Uh, Banjo-Kazooie. I, I dispute that. I have memories. I enjoyed it when I played it. Just I didn't play it in 1998. I played it in like 2008. So Banjo-Kazooie was a game that originally was going to be on the SNES uh, under a different title, Project Dream, which was going to be about a young boy named Edison uh, who had uh, trouble with pirates. Uh, the game eventually went through many kind of different uh, facelifts and arrived in 1998 on the N64. Um, there's going to be a theme to the games I pick on this show. There's going to be a lot of N64 uh, fondness, because it was my console growing up. But So Banjo-Kazooie comes out in 1998, and it was really kind of... 
for me, it was around that time where most of the games I would be playing regularly on the N64 were by Rare. Uh, Rare, at the time, were just the best around for me. They were anyway, firing on all cannons, let's be honest. They they really, really were. Um, and it, it, Which makes it a lot very sad now, which we'll probably get onto at some point during this, uh, uh, to see kind of what's happened in the years since. But um, at the time, Rare were just the best. If Almost as much as the kind of the Nintendo seal of quality. If you saw on the N64 box that Rareware logo, <laughs> yeah. you were you knew you were in for a treat. Yeah. Right. So I got this game as I described last week. I was like so so excited for this game. I was a proper Nintendo fanboy when I was a kid, to the extent where I would refuse to play my friend's PS1 when he was around. I was just like, you picked the wrong console, mate. Sorry. <laughs> You know, don't want any Resident Evil shit like that or anything like that. Like, I would go, I would later on become a lot more mature and realize that, you know, I'd, I'd miss a lot of these and go back to them. But at the time, I was hardcore N64 to the extent where I would buy Nintendo official magazine every month and it was the best read I had every month. And I remember following this all through kind of the, you know, the upcoming title stories about Banjo-Kazooie, getting myself into proper into a fervor over it. And like I described last week on the show, kind of hoodwinking a newsagent into putting aside a copy of the strategy guide for me and all this sort of stuff. It really is kind of when I think back on kind of games that have brought me to the unfortunate financial obsession I have with video games now where I kind of uh, spend an unreasonable amount of money on them Banjo-Kazooie is partly to blame for that it's a game where even now at nearly 26 I can just turn on the N64 put in the original copy of Banjo-Kazooie I got in May 1998 fire it up and I'm still having a grand old time and it's got all the hallmarks of just rare brilliance the platforming in it is absolutely solid the kind of it's a collectathon there's a lot of things to collect in it there's your jiggies the jigsaw pieces there's the jinjos things like this there are a lot of a lot of kind of things to collect in the game and whereas now when i play a game that's kind of a -a collectathon i get very very frustrated and think oh for the love of fucking god there's no way am i collecting everything in this game but like Banjo-Kazooie was one of those games where, like, I was quite happy to stay in that world as long as I possibly could. Uh, collect everything I could, have as much fun as possible. Another thing that really kind of hits home for me, and by now you've probably heard it in the intro to this segment, the soundtrack to Banjo-Kazooie is among my favourite soundtracks in any game. It is just so happy, it's so fun, it's so kind of indicative of... It's just my childhood in a soundtrack. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's just a brilliant game. It, to me, anyway, at least. I, I remember it very, very fondly. Like The game follows um, a, a bear and bird duo, Banjo and Kazooie, who attempt to free Banjo's sister Tootie from the evil witch Gruntilda, which is just a kind of nice, kind of playful childhood premise. And kind of through that kind of uh, narrative, you explore, I think it's nine different worlds. There's, I think, a hundred of these jiggies, the jigsaw pieces, the golden jigsaw pieces to collect, which like are a mixture of kind of some of them, you just have to find them. They're out in the world, in the levels. And some of them you have to like complete puzzles or challenges to get them. There's a wide range of kind of different skills, different kind of cool little things you can unlock throughout the game, whether it's kind of, you know, 
Kazooie shooting eggs or kind of uh, being able to fly a bit or kind of going to uh, going to the the shaman and get and getting changed into different animals to complete different challenges and levels or you know if you're a fan of a cheat code turning banjo into a washing machine which is always fun um no it's just um i don't know i just like i just remember this game so fondly um what are, what, are, what are your thoughts on it you you said you didn't play it at the time but you came back to it kind of a bit older i'm curious to hear what your kind of impressions of things are with without the kind of the rose tinted glasses i have yeah so i mean as you said banjo kazooie uh, is that kind of collector fun type game and for me uh, those kind of games never properly i got into uh, there's kind of stuff like that and spyro that i always found to be a little bit tedious now they obviously both have their platforming elements but those platforming elements certainly weren't as immediate or designed with that focus in mind like a Mario 64 but there is and this goes for most rare games and certainly a lot of Nintendo games there is a pure innocence and charm and just fun like it's just a sense of fun that you get from playing that kind of game uh, and you know Banjo-Kazooie has that and like I, I love Grant Kirkhope's uh, stuff, the fucking Viva Pinata, Pinata soundtrack is just beautiful. Uh, Donkey Kong Country is just still holds up today, and yeah, I mean it's it's I I find it more to be an exploration game than a platform game. Yeah, that'd be that'd be um, fair. Yeah, and I mean I, it's the kind of game that you can just really just get lost in for you know a few days, where you can just really just sit down and just just. You just immerse yourself in the world and all the characters with their kind of funny voices yeah. you know it just has that charm to it and it's, it's one of those games where like the it's a relatively early example in my game playing kind of life where it was very kind of like that and super mario 64 uh have this kind of uh, i don't know how i describe it kind of non-linearity to them where you don't necessarily have to go to stage one unlock everything on stage one progress to stage two Kind of a thing. Yeah. You can come back to levels later on where there's still some jiggies, or in Mario where there's still some stars you haven't unlocked yet. And particularly in Banjo Kazooie, when you've got kind of more and more skills, there are some that are layered in where you kind of it's forcing you to come back to the level later when you've gone to another level and unlocked, you know, uh, skill X. It was one of the very first examples of that where I can kind of like explore the world or as much of the world as I kind of can when I've. Uh, Unlock. There are kind of these doors where you collect musical notes. There's a hundred in each level, and depending on the amounts, the amount of notes that you have, it unlocks various parts of the the whole overworld. So it was kind of like one of the first games I played, particularly on the the N64. Anyway, that kind of said, right, okay, you decide what order you want to do all these things in, and. Like, uh, there are still some I haven't played. Like, my most recent full playthrough of the game, uh, start to finish, was I think last summer. Uh, I just cracked out the N64 and just kind of played it non-stop for a couple of days. And uh, one of the things I love about it is that, um, whereas, you know, it's still got all that, you know, the childhood memories, stuff like that. I'm still being brought back to 1998 when I was, like, eight years old and how much fun I had then. But there are still challenges in it. Like, if you want to go now, go back and try complete it 100%, there are still challenges to it that fucking frustrate me still to this day. There's, there's particularly one, I think it's in, what's it called? Is it Rusty Book of Bay or something like that, where there's one, um, there's Jiggy hidden behind a turbine on the bottom of a boat that still drives me absolutely mental to this day. 
and I do appreciate that that the game does like it, it's one of those ones. There's a lot of the one uh, a lot of games that I've held on to over the years from the, the N64 era in particular that like I can still go back to now and have as much fun as I used to with them. Much like you kind of we were saying about Link to the Past last week, and I think that's going to be like a theme going forward. They're games that we loved then and that we still love now. How um, I mean, have you played? Banjo Tooie. Oh, of course, yes, I have. I've, uh, there was no way was I not getting Banjo Tooie. So Banjo Tooie is interesting to me, firstly because um, there there was an attempt, a real kind of, and we talk about Nintendo really shooting the moon and trying to do real crazy stuff. There was um, this idea they had about really weird, kind of obscure, hidden items in Banjo Kazooie. I don't, I don't know if you kind of encountered this but that uh would form something called the i want to say it's the, the shop and swap or stop and swap i have heard about this yeah right so the idea was going to be the, the stop and swap that's what it was the idea was that if you collect all these it would then transfer to the sequel banjo kazooie or banjo tooie by i don't know taking out the cartridge really quickly or something like that but kind of, they realised, having already put it in the game and put out the finished game, that the N64 was kind of limited and couldn't really do that. So there's kind of these weird, obscure items that are very, very hard to find in the game. You, I think there's one you might accidentally run across, if I recall correctly. There's like a, fro- a key frozen in a block of ice. But apart from that, the rest of them are, you would almost need to be shown where they are. They're that kind of out of the way. But they, yeah. ju- they just kind of still exist there in the game, which I appreciate. That kind of, like, they just didn't bother taking it out. And kind of later on then, when they came to Xbox Live, they completed that, where you could carry over into the next game. I believe what it eventually did was, if you, caught, if you got all the stop and swap, if I'm not mistaken, if you got all the stop and swap items in Banjo-Kazooie, it unlocked a trailer for the video game classic, uh, Nuts and Bolts. <laughs> uh, which, I, we're not going to sully this... Uh, what a prize. This reminiscence with that. But uh, no, Banjo-Tooie, uh, the thing about that was, I enjoyed Banjo-Tooie, but to me, if if Banjo-Kazooie came out today, Banjo-Tooie would be the DLC we get four or five months down the line. You know what I mean? It was kind yeah. of, it wasn't different enough to justify it being a different game. It wasn't like, say, uh, Ocarina of Time, Majora's Mask, where right, Ocarina yeah. of Time, one of the great games of all time, Majora's Mask, one of the great games of all time. They are not... It's they, a little bit better. <laughs> they are... I will do my, this every week. I, I know you will. You're just going to keep shoehorning that in, even if we don't bring it up. <laughs> but um, wildly different games. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, Ocarina of Time is fantastic, but like Majora's Mask, and I would, I might be inclined to agree with you on your Majora's Mask campaign, just because like it's so weird and different and like unlike any other Zelda game, really. Just there's nothing else like they're drastically different in their tone. Yeah, exactly. And um, she's saying Kazooie and, and Tui pretty much follow a similar theme yeah, and path. Like, and, like I said, yeah. like it's, I wouldn't say they're like two halves of the same game because that would be to say that Banjo Kazooie doesn't feel complete. It does. But it is basically like, like I said, it will be the equivalent today of DLC. It's like, you've had this game for a few months, how about some more levels and a couple of more skills? You know what I mean? Which doesn't necessarily sound like the worst. No, I still had a whale of a time with Banjo-Tooie. It's just not, it just didn't give me that same rush and kind of love and adoration I had the first time around because I knew what to expect by Banjo-Tooie, which came out, I think, two years later, maybe even a little bit less. 
but yeah, that's I think that pretty much sums up my like. If you look at it, um, go back and try and look up um reviews at the time. It is kind of even if you just go onto Wikipedia and look up a kind of a, the aggregate scores and the scores and the summary of the the reviews for the game, like it was really kind of critically lauded at the time. Like it had how it holds a Metacritic score of ninety two. Like so, it's um. It's just it's quite good. Yeah, for me it's 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 really an all-time classic. Uh, in the same way that like my Desert Island games are mostly probably going to be N64 games and Banjo-Kazooie might well be in there. Um with like a Mario 64 or a Majora's Mask or something like that. Um well, I'm going to segue in this into what we'll be playing next week and I think this game might be in that Desert Island Discs type list with for you as well. Do tell. Uh, we are only going back to 2007. Oh, okay. Because um, uh, I would like to next week talk about Bioshock. Oh, oh, yes. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I am. I'm quite happy with that. Which, if nothing else, gives me an excuse to go pick up a second-hand copy and play Bioshock over uh, the next weekend, which is what I very much plan on doing. Oh well, look, you know, you shouldn't need an excuse to revisit. Uh revisit Rapture but uh, look no but it helps yeah exactly in fact I'm wearing like, yeah. a Bioshock t-shirt right now so I know you so well <laughs> but yeah I very much look forward to that excuse cool okay well that wraps up uh, our second edition of A Link to the Cast uh, thank you very much for anyone that listened last week and thank you very much in advance for anyone that has listened to this week's show uh, I will put this up on to the YouTubes and I'll give you the link to our Tumblr as well so please go and have a look because we have our first review of Kobe and the Rainbow Paintbrush up there we will try and uh, you know start kind of hammering some content out as and when we can but and yet yeah, you know, my, you know. my, my schedule will freeze up very soon so I won't be leaving you to shoulder that burden on your own for very long and I have no life so it's pretty easy for me we are very sad individuals if you take anything away from this episode it's that we are very sad Oh, take anything away from this podcast in general, it will be that. And on that positive <laughs> note, uh, thank you very much, Dave Ryan, for your time. Anytime, my friend. And uh, yeah, we will see you again in about a week or so's time. Bye now.